Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. If you're like me, you've probably read this passage many times over the years and haven't really given it much thought. I mean, what does it really mean? But we say these things often, if it's the Lord's will, if I live until tomorrow. But have you given much thought to the, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes part? I live with a reminder of just how precious life is and how quickly that can change. 30 years ago, my husband's wife and young son were tragically killed in a car crash and taken away from him in an instant. That is something you never fully recover from. He doesn't take life for granted. We try to live in the moment and not put things off. But in reality, we all put off things we know we should do because we can do them later, tomorrow, next week, next year. But we're not promised tomorrow. I think that is what these verses are trying to tell us. Make each moment count because tomorrow may never come. James is right, life is a vapor, like a morning mist that soon vanishes. So life is short and uncertain. There are no guarantees about tomorrow, let alone next year or 10 years from now. James wants us to know that because life is a vapor, we should humble ourselves before God and obey His will. Well, it's terrific to see all of you here this morning. Thanks for bringing your smiles into this place on a rather gloomy Sunday and making it a beautiful place in here. Uh, you really are special and important. And if you're worshiping with us today at uh, socc.tv, we welcome you as well. We're in this series, Relevant Faith, and uh, we're in James chapter 4, as uh, Donna shared in the video there just a couple minutes ago. So if you have your scriptures, turn to James 4. If you have it on your phone or your tablet, look up there. If you've got it memorized, why uh, start combing through the recesses of your mind to see if you can find James 4 there as well. Have you ever been a judge for some kind of a contest? I, I don't find that to be a very enviable role. I, I once had the responsibility of serving as a judge for a single category in a um, local classic car show. Uh, thankfully, the, the car owners didn't know I was the one making the choice, but even then it was still difficult. Because you see, every vehicle that was there could have been awarded a trophy for one reason or another. And every car or truck owner felt that their vehicle was worthy of the trophy, the time, the energy, the money, uh, all that they had invested in that vehicle to make it uh, a show car. And then, you know, I can't remove my biases from things like that. I mean, all of us have a little bit of subjectivity when it comes to passing judgments. There are certain eras of car history that I like better than others. There are certain colors on cars I like better than others. And I tried to be as objective as I could be, but it's impossible to be 100% objective. So I made my choice, made one person happy. Because you see, when you're judging like that. That's what happens. Maybe you've been on the other end as a contestant, whether it's been a 4-H project or animal to show or a state music contest or writing contest or a sporting event that requires judges, then you know the pressure and the anticipation of participating. 
You may know the thrill of victory. More than likely, you know the agony of defeat. Because when you're being judged, only one comes out with the trophy. There, there's, one, there's one scenario where I think I, I'd be okay. If I could be sequestered in a secret room, and if my identity would remain anonymous after the contest, and if I was given all the time in the world to judge homemade pies, I'd do it. <laughs> now, why all this stuff about drawing conclusions and passing judgment? Well, in these next few verses, James is going to deal with that very concept. Drawing conclusions about our spiritual family and about our spiritual future. And he says, when we mess up on those kinds of things, when we pass judgment on other people in the body of Christ, and when we plan on the future as if we're in the ones in control, he said, that grows out of a boastful or arrogant attitude, and that ought not be the case. And so James kind of comes at two different things that we're going to take a look at for just a few minutes this morning. And here's the first one. He says, guard your speech. In verses 11 and 12, this is what we read. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I think it's really easy for us to gloss over these couple of verses because we so seldom use the word or talk about slander. And when it's something that doesn't come up in conversation very often, we can just kind of bypass it, think we're not guilty of it. Either that or we don't really understand what slander is, and so we just kind of bypass it. We don't realize that it means to falsely accuse malicious speech that is untrue. And so we kind of go on our merry way and, and don't think much about it. But James uses the word here in a very powerful way. Actually, James uses the word twice. The NIV translation uses the word slander once and uses the phrase speak against the second time around, but it's the same word. And in the context that James writes, he's talking about doing that to people who are in the body of Christ. James is addressing the concern of how we speak about others in the church. Now, I, I think he may be re reflecting on the Old Testament law out of the book of Leviticus. It reads like this. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. In other words, these words come directly from, from the Lord. This is a part of his law. Don't slander your spiritual family. And here's the rub. The word slander in scripture means more than our common definition of it. It refers to any speech that runs down another human being, whether it is true or false. Most of us guard against the untrue stuff, but we're pretty open to sharing the stuff that's true, no matter how painful or destructive it may be. Remember this quote from Canadian humorist Richard J. Needham? He's the one who said, the person who is brutally honest enjoys the brutality quite as much as the honesty, possibly more. You know, that really is true. We need to be so careful what we say about others. It is not right to share something painful about someone else. We need to realize that when we speak against another in the church, we tarnish the image of Christ that we're so desperate to reflect. The famous German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
wrote this. He said, the angry word is a blow struck at our brother, a stab at his heart. It seeks to hit, to hurt, and to destroy. A deliberate insult is worse. For we openly disgrace our brother in the eyes of the world, causing others to despise him. We talk a lot about how bad anger is. Bonhoeffer says that insulting someone is worse than being angry with someone because we cause the world to despise that person. James suggests that our criticism of a fellow believer equates to standing in judgment over our fellow believer. In other words, when we speak such judgmental nature, we place ourselves above the law and even above God. And you say, well, in what way do we do that? Well, did you notice that James uses the word neighbor in this verse? I think he's drawing a contrast between the sin of judging our brother as compared to the command to love our neighbor. In James' mind, being critical of a fellow believer contradicts the demand to love our neighbor as ourself. Thus, we fail to keep the law by placing our views and our opinions above God's views and God's commands. And who among us can judge objectively? You can't remove your bias. You can't remove your subjectivity. And so, in my opinion, our subjectivity ruins any chance that we have of really doing this correctly. And, and, and I'll tell you what, my opinions are subjective. Aren't yours? I, I, I'll freely admit, I, I can't, <laughs> can't take out my likes and my dislikes and my biases. It just is impossible. And to suggest that mine is the only opinion that counts... Why, that's, uh, that's pure arrogance. James goes on to remind us that when we pass judgment on another, we are stepping into a role reserved for God alone. Only God reserves the right to judge. Have you ever had anybody, you're trying to teach your child a, a, a special moment, and somebody that's not a parent, uh, not, not a family member, steps in and says, here, let, let me do it for you. How do you feel when somebody does that? Kind of indignant. I'm the parent. This is my teachable moment. I, I want to tell my child what is right and what is wrong here. How, how rude for somebody else to step into that role and take on my parenting role. Don't you think the Heavenly Father feels that way when we step in and say, Here, God, let, let, let me judge this person on your behalf. I, I'm pretty sure God would be a little bit indignant about that. Now, all that said, let me hasten to add what James is not saying. Again, we need to keep these thoughts in their proper context. James is not prohibiting the proper and vital discrimination that every Christian should exercise. As a matter of fact, folks, we are to be protectors of our Christian family. And there is a vast difference between what is opinion and what is a clear violation of biblical principles and morality. Suppose you have a friend who is having an affair, or you got a schoolmate who is cheating in class, and you go to them privately in a spirit of love, and you point out the error of their way, and then they respond to you angrily, accusing you of violating what Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged, or accusing you of violating what James writes here. In truth, you are not judging, nor are you violating the words of Christ or this text in James. Do not miss this important spiritual distinction. 
When God's word declares something to be a sin and practicing such keeps one from a right relationship with God, then it is not judging to warn a person about the spiritual danger. If you can save someone from sinning, you are participating in the work of God, not in judgment. The distinction must be drawn between God's commands and human opinions. If you say, what idiot would drive a car that color, and then you go on to demean that person for choosing that color on a car, you're, you're, you're judging. But when God declares something is true, then sharing that truth is not passing judgment. The judgment has already been made by God. So here's the deal. You and I are in the I am my brother's keeper business. It is our responsibility to look out for one another in the body of Christ. We're to help each other to follow God, to, to avoid sin. So look, here it is, folks. When I get out of line, when I'm wrong, you need to call me on it. Because I want your protection to help me stay on the straight and narrow. You got the, got the, the difference here? If you say, I don't like the color of your car that you're driving, my response is, tough. I like it. There's a distinction. Your opinion, my opinion, should remain just that, opinions. But God's word is where we all come together to try to keep each other on the same path, serving, loving, and following him. We in the church claim that we believe this. In matters of faith, unity... In matters of opinion, liberty, and in all things, love. But do we practice that? Are we united in the matters of faith that, that, that are non-negotiable? Are we free in our areas of opinion? And do we do all things in a spirit of loving God and loving one another? James, once again, reminds us to use our words to build up, not tear down. We must be positively different from the culture around us. And that means to stop judging one another in the body of Christ. Now, let me say it this way. I know the context is, is judging in the, in the body of Christ. But I'm going to tell you, I think God feels the same way. You and I have no right to judge people on the basis of our opinion, no matter what, period. So just leave that alone. Leave that in God's hands because opinions don't matter. His word does. Stop speculating on them. Okay, here's, here's the second thing. Guard your speculation with regard to the future. Guard your speech. Now guard your speculation with regard to the future. Now Donna read this in the, in the video a few minutes ago, but let me read it again to you. Verses 13 and following. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go uh, to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, some of you reading that are going to say, I told you we shouldn't spend so much time and effort on planning for the future. James says we don't plan for the future. No, that's not what James is talking about here. So again, understand the context. The, the, the scriptures clear, clearly make, 
uh, make it a point to teach us to plan for the future. You read through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. You read through the life of Christ. And, and all of it is about planning for the future. Proverbs 21.5 says, Good planning and hard work leads to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. So what, what's James' beef here? What, what's, what's his gripe? Well, what James is talking about falls more in line with the parable that Jesus told of the rich farmer who had such a bumper crop that he tore down his barns and built bigger barns, stored everything that he had in the barns, didn't share any of it, and then said to himself, all right, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have a wonderful time. And that night, he died. James is saying, when you plan, don't plan without God. The farmer in the story cared only about what was his. He was planning for a future, thought he was in control of his future. His future had nothing to do with God's plans. And James says, when you plan like that, you're all messed up. We can't assume to know what our creator has planned and must constantly be looking to him for his counsel. We must remember that God is sovereign. Our planning must recognize his power over our lives. To plan without God, to plan without considering his plan for us is, well, that's just arrogant. It suggests that we know better than God what's right for our lives. Now, here's part of our problem when it comes to planning and, and, and thinking like this. For most of us in this room, tomorrow looks just like today and the day before. I'm not talking about the weather, okay? Although tomorrow does look like what today and the day before was supposed to be. We plan as though life will go on the same. I've got a sheet on my desk right now that, that maps out my week all the way through Saturday. I was looking at it this morning. I know what I'm, what's on my schedule for Thursday and Friday, and who knows what will come up by, before then. So I'm already looking five days out on the week. But I don't even know if I'll get through today. You don't know if you'll get through the day. You see, James brings us back to a sense of reality. In these next few verses, we're looking ahead to tomorrow as if it's already here, that we have it, that we're in control of it. James says, don't do that. Take each day as it comes. You, you, you let God handle the tomorrows. And, and out of these verses come some questions. Out of verse 13 comes this question. Well, what really matters in life? Well, as we've already discussed, never do we find this God discouraging planning ahead. Uh, as a matter of fact, folks, from a spiritual standpoint of view, you've got to plan ahead. Uh, if, if you're going to decide your eternal destiny, you do this now. You don't do that after you die. Once you die, your, your fate is sealed. You can't make the choice then. So, yes, you're planning ahead now where you're going to spend eternity. So, again, it's the planning ahead from that perspective that's important. What really matters in life? kind of boil it down to just, it's real easy to answer that question. Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. That's what matters most. There are a lot of important things that we can be doing and should be doing, but the most important thing, that which matters most is a relationship with the Lord. Everything else is just, well, there. But he is the one that gives us not only here, he gives us tomorrow. I've read, I haven't been able to verify it for sure, but I've read that in ancient Constantinople, 
On the day the emperor was crowned, that a stonemason would present the new monarch with several marble slabs for him to choose his tombstone. It was the wisdom of the day that the emperor should remember his funeral on the day of his coronation. You know, there, there's something really wise about that. When we think we've got the world, uh, you know, under control, when we think we've got the tiger by the tail, it's easy to just think, I'm, I'm king of the mountain. I'm top of the heap. And James is saying, no, keep your priorities straight. What really matters in life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may be king today, but tomorrow you'll be buried. So get, get your act together. Here's a second question that grows out of verse 14. It says, what's a realistic view of the future? James reminds us that we're not clairvoyant, that we have no way of knowing what will happen tomorrow. And I'm really glad we don't know. I mean, I think our fears and our worries would destroy any quality of life that we'd have if we knew what was coming down the road and the sadness that was going to be there. We'd focus on that and miss all the joy that comes from daily living. Here's a realistic glimpse. If you don't live for God, your life can only have a temporary significance. Let me say that again. If you don't live for God, if you don't bring God into your life, if you don't plan with God in your future, then your life can only have temporary significance if it has that at all. Notice James says that we are but a mist. It's another word for fog, and some of us are more of a fog than others this morning. But a mist or a fog doesn't stay around very long. It's here, and then it's gone. We don't remember them very well either. I mean, we talk about the flood of 37 or the blizzard of 78 or the fire of 91, but when's the last time anybody said to you, hey, do you remember the mist of, of 2010? <laughs> do, do you remember that big fog we had last year? I, I, I bet a, not a one of us would remember any of us because we just, we just don't focus on mists and fogs and vapors. A life lived apart from Jesus Christ just isn't much, just like a mist or a fog, or a vapor, isn't much. Pick up the obituaries this morning. Read them. On average, on average, three paragraphs are devoted to a person's life in this world, whether they're 19 or they're 91. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to us. Life is like that. Here one minute and gone the next. A fog, a vapor. In all of our planning for tomorrow, please remember, we are but a mist. And someday, even the world will miss us when we're gone. Verses 15 and 16 suggest this question, who is in charge? Well, that's an easy answer. God is. James reminds us to approach all of life from the point of God's will for us. It's God's will that carries the day. He's the only one who knows tomorrow and holds tomorrow under his control. How dare we brag and boast of what we have or will not have or what we'll do or we won't do. A few years ago, Bill Franklin of London, England submitted a question to the Ask Maryland column of Parade magazine. Here was his question. It's a good question. He said, if someone offered you a pill that made you immortal, would you take it? 
The pill is free, has no side effects, and could also be given to any number of people of your choosing. Now, Marilyn's response was not a religious response. It doesn't include anything about faith, but it was nonetheless quite insightful. Here's what Marilyn wrote back. The question as I see it is whether I would be willing to take the risk for myself and others of eventually becoming trapped forever in a situation of intense suffering. This risk seems high given the fact that we would be existing throughout every war, disease, and natural disaster that comes our way. Ultimately, someday, somewhere, we would be so badly damaged that life would not be worth living, but we would still never die. So no, I would not take that pill. No matter how long I could live happily, the prospect of eternal misery is too high a price to pay. Well, that, that hits the nail right on the head. Now I realize in many cases, death comes all too soon. But in a very real sense, death for the Christian is like a graduation ceremony. We are freed from all the tests and trials inherent to this life in a sin-broken world. We are promised by God something better than the very best day in an entire world can hold for us here. Indeed, if we could not die, life might become so impossibly painful that we would remain miserable forever. It's a blessing that when, when sin entered this world and broke this world, that we had the opportunity to be released from this world. So ultimately, someday, death is God's blessing because of his promise. I think God has a great plan. Do your best to plan for tomorrow, but put your faith and trust in the one who holds tomorrow in the palm of his hand and who will get you out of a tough tomorrow when the time's right. Last thing in verse 17 suggests this question. How then should I live? James says, well, if you know what is good and you don't do it, it's sin. You see, we always, when we think of sin, focus on the things we do wrong. But James says, even if you know something is good and you don't do that, that is also sin. So why, how do I live a good? How should I live? Well, live a life that glorifies God. Follow his wisdom and his, his advice. Trust him with all of your future. Make him your priority. God first, today, tomorrow, and forever. And live your life humbly. When we forget who we are or we think more highly of ourselves than we should, that's when the arrogance of our life leaves us to subjectively judge others and to speculate on our control of the future. And I'm telling you, pride, not, not the pride that you have in your kids or grandkids or the pride that you have in your yard or your car or something like that. That's not the kind of pride I'm talking about. I'm talking about the pride that the scriptures talk about where you think you are above God. That kind of pride will always result in the worst possible choices. So keep evaluating your daily life in Christ. Never take your spiritual relationship for granted. Seek to improve your walk with him every day. Live it humbly. Guard your speech. Guard your speculation about the future. I've uh, had the... Uh, joy of being in, in the audience on a few occasions when the Blue Angels, the Navy's Blue Angels, or the Air Force Thunderbirds perform live. I'm telling you, if you've never seen them, it is just an incredible uh, experience. 
And I suppose they probably both do the same thing. I, I'm, I'm not sure about the Thunderbirds, but I do know for sure about the, uh, the Blue Angels. They perform for 11 million people every year. Their routines are just excellence at the best. These, these folks are the pilots' pilots. I, they are just, their expertise is exquisite. But, but here's the deal. After every performance, and they fly back to the airfield where they're stationed for that particular air show, the first thing they do is they review the performance. Maybe they take a look at film that was captured on cameras in, in the jets that they're flying. But they, they review all the moves, all of the performance, everything about it, and you say, after all the time that they do this, all the practice that they go through, all of the shows that they do, why would they need to do that? I mean, you, you can't get any better than the Blue Angels. Well, here's the deal. They know that by continuing to evaluate their performances, that they will stay at the top of their game, that their excellence will be the very best that it can be that because they are constantly evaluating their performance, they will stay at the highest level possible and the highest safety possible. What if? What if we stopped every day to evaluate our lives and our service for Jesus Christ? What if? Every day we ask ourselves the tough questions about the way I live, the sins I have chosen, the walk that I'm doing with Jesus. What if every day we made a special effort to be accountable to God for our actions? If we would do that, then I think we would perform at our highest level of excellence for him. And I think we would stop spreading slander and stop speculating without God. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.